Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Today I will be reading scripture from Daniel 6, 1 to 16. It pleases Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer a loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in the conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor neglect. Finally, these men said, We will never find any bias for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, Making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered. In accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem three times a day and got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians and cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of your exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict, or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and the brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. This is the word of the Lord. Got a question for you. What do you do every day? Not the stuff that we all do every day, like eating and sleeping. Like, what do you do every day? If you think about your life, there's little things, little habits. Probably if you live with someone, if you live with family, if you're married, you have kids or whatever, there are little things that you do every day that they kind of laugh at you about, but you just kind of do them unconsciously. Like, um, I eat the same thing for breakfast every day, and I prep it the same way too. Now, when I say prep, it's, it's toast, but 
Jen gets annoyed with me because I get annoyed with her when she tries to prep it for me because there's just a way to do it. And I just do that the same way. I brush my teeth the same way every day. Like, I brush my teeth every day, which is good news to all of you. But I brush it the same way, same number of strokes each side or whatever. I don't think about that. I just thought about it this week when I was thinking about what I do every day. Because the point is, uh, Charles Duhigg wrote a book called The Power of Habit. And he said that 40% of our daily activity is unconscious. We don't actually choose it. We just do it out of habit, out of routine. What he means by that is 40% of the activity we're doing, our brain is actually near sleep mode when we're doing it. You may have experienced this before with if you drive, uh, you know, if you drive to the same place every day, say for work, and then all of a sudden you're taking that path to do something else, but you end up taking that same road. Why? Because your mind has slipped into that unconscious habit. I'm just going to, and, or <laughs> you ever had that experience where you're driving on the road going, Where's my mind been for the last hour? Because it hasn't been here, right? It's the power of habit. And here's the thing, and this is kind of scary. The habits of your life shape the substance of your life. And I don't mean like teeth brushing and breakfast preparation. I mean the things that you think perpetually, habitually. The way that you see the world, the patterns at which you process information, the things that you do every day for leisure or for recreation, the way that you think about money, the way that you, the way that you spend money, there is the, the perpetual repetition of things. Like, you think when you're born, you're born with basically the habit to, like, eat and sleep and go through a whole pack of diapers in a day. That's it. Everything else is learned. You did it once, you did it again, you did it again. And there's all kinds of psychology and physiology behind that. But the point is that there's so much of our life that is lived out of habits. And we are the sum total of what we do over and over and over again. Uh, This week there was an interview with, uh, or a a story came out about uh, the head coach of a national sports team that had said some inappropriate racist comment on a video camera at a wedding. And it like surfaced, of course, through TMZ or something like that, some reputable news source or whatever. And it was interesting, and this happens all the time, when when they asked him about it, he said, well, I'm sorry I did that, that's not who I am. To which I'm going, I think that was you on the camera. Like, if it's not you, who is it? What we're saying is, oh, that's not who I am. But my guess is it's not the first time, not to beat on him, because we all have habits that we would never love to be caught on camera, right? But there's this thing about us, we say, well, that, but that's probably not the first time he ever had a racist thought. Probably not the first time he ever had a sexist thought or made a sexist joke. It just came out. Why? Because what you do over and over is kind of how you're shaped, the, 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 life, the, the life that you have, which is kind of scary, you know, because we are the sum total of what we do over and over. And the catch is this. Since most of this is unconscious activity, you don't become aware of what is happening repetitiously in your life until some pressure comes into your life or hardship, right? Because under pressure or in times of hardship, who we are comes out. Or as someone once said, whatever the cup is full of is what comes out when it's bumped. Whatever spills out is the product of what is going on inside of us over and over. And you know this, uh, even as we've been going through the book of Daniel the last uh, few weeks, that life is full of pressure and hardship. Some of you coming in today feeling a tremendous amount of pressure because of a relationship situation, because of a financial situation, because of a test set of test results that you're waiting for you or for a loved one. You are, are facing a tremendous amount of hardship or you're walking alongside people or you've come through a season and if you are happen to be the one out of 100 that says, no, I'm not like that. Well, it's coming because <laughs> that's life. Pressure, hardship. 
And in those times of pressure and hardship, who we are on the inside actually begins to come out. We're talking about this through the book of Daniel because, um, and we were calling this series Foreigners because we said this, this book, Daniel, is about, it's a little kind of a window into the lives of this man, Daniel, and his friends as they journey through as foreigners in this place called Babylon. And what we said that not only is Babylon like a, an ancient city, it's an actual city, it's not called Babylon anymore, but it's in modern day Iraq. Um, it's not only a historical city, but it's actually uh, r- uh, symbolic. The name Babylon appears all the way through scripture. It's a description of the alternate reality that, in a sense, you and I find ourselves in, which is why every one of us from time to time feels like foreigners. We feel like we don't fit. And I don't know about you, but when I go through times of hardship or pressure, that's when I begin to say, man, this doesn't feel right. Why is life like this? Why is this situation? Like There's something about this just it just feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. Why is life like this? And we feel the pressure of sometimes being in a place. Maybe you feel like that in school. Maybe you feel like that. That's, that's how you feel like the black sheep of the family or whatever, or in the work situation that you're in, or just the life situation. Or sometimes you just read the news and you think, man, like, what is wrong with this world? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit. It's because, in a sense, every one of us is not quite home. And this book is giving us a little bit of a guide to say, well, how do you live and survive? In fact, how do you thrive in a place, in a culture, in an environment that doesn't feel like home? And we come to the, st- uh, the story that Camille read for us is the story that m- even if you've never grown up in the church, you didn't read much of the Bible, you kind of have heard about Daniel and the lion's den, right? And if you did, you're just having images of flannel graph coming to mind. Like that was the best story. And, th- and th- we told this story about Daniel like being, um, you know, uh, set up by these guys who were jealous and wanted to take him because he-, he sort of, um, he comes in as this foreigner, this 14, 15-year-old teenager, foreign land, kind of tried to be brainwashed or whatever, and somehow uh, he passed through. Remember, we talked about four different kings, two different empires, but he just keeps on rising. They can't take this guy down. And in fact, the jobs he gets get better and better and better. And this is the fourth king he served, King Darius, who's king of the Medo-Persian Empire that had conquered Babylon before Alexander the Great came and conquered them. Daniel's working for him. And uh, Darius decides to set up these guys who can kind of govern. And so he's got 120 people that are governing the area, which is uh, Babylon, now Medo-Persia. And then he thinks, well, we need some regional managers. So he puts three above them. And he has in his mind that he's going to make Daniel head over all of them, which is crazy because Daniel's a foreigner, right? He's not a Medo-Persian. He's going to basically become second in command in the kingdom. And so, of course, the guys around him who are not foreigners are saying, there's no way this guy who's not from our country, who doesn't worship our God, we know all about him. He is not going to rule over us. So they set up this thing with the king. He was kind of an easy, it was rope-a-dope, you know. Hey, we think we should make a law that everyone should worship you for 30 days. He's like, That's how, there isn't one? That sounds good. Like, let's do that. And if they don't, we'll throw them in the line. Then sure, let's do that, because who's going to not do that if that's how the thing works? So we don't have to worry about the penalty. No one's going to make us enforce it. And they know. And so Daniel goes back to his home, windows open Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was where he's from. And in that sense, the idea of where he's from was where God was from, even though we know God was with him in Babylon. There's this idea of praying towards Jerusalem, remembering his God, which he does every day, and he does it again three times a day. And, of course, they set him up, and he's going into the lion's den. King tries to save him, can't. And then uh, we read this. And what happens? So the king can't sleep, runs to the, to the place where he threw Daniel in with the lion's den, pushes the stone away, and he yells down, Daniel, did your God save you? Here's what Daniel says in Daniel 6, 21 to 23. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. 
The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So not only does this guy survive the night with lions, it says there isn't even a mark on him. And he's vindicated right in front of these enemies. And if you read on, the king ends up throwing these guys and their families in. It's pretty gruesome, but that's what they did back then. That's what those kings were like, right? And so Daniel like, comes out in flying colors. And this is you know, part of the reason we love this story, even if you've never heard it. Man, we love this kind of, oh, this was pressure, high pressure. Daniel was like, you know, impeccable, unimpeachable character, gets thrown to the lines, and not even a scratch on him. He gets lifted out, and he's saved, and this is like a victory story, very triumphant, right? And we love stories like this, especially when they're come to like, man, like if I'm under pressure, if I'm facing hardship, this is what I want life to be, because we all dream about killing it under pressure. Right? That's a little bit of our fantasy life. It's like, oh, the, you know, a, a new challenge or something happens or whatever, and we read stories about this, and we like stories like this, and we think, man, I want to be like that. And maybe you're going through something, and you have this part of the frustration we have is because, man, I want to make sure I'm, I want to kill it under pressure. I want to be the person that rises above the hardship. Um, and I was thinking a, a little bit about that. I want to show you a little video. This probably represents a little bit of what we feel like when, when things are under pressure. Oh, man, right? This is, I mean, even if you, never, even if you don't know who Steph Curry is or whatever, welcome. Okay, but that, the French guys are my favorite in that, in that whole thing. But that's what we dream about, right? Like, oh, that moment, the pressure, the clock's winding down. This guy's just cool. Ice in his veins just drops it. Boom. You know, like he'd planned it all the time. That's kind of a picture. I, I think it's why we love watching stuff like that. And we, we hope maybe when that happens, someone's watching and they can commentate on our lives. It's why these stories go out over the world or whatever, and people like in every language are commentating on this. It's a victory story. It's why we love watching sports. And it's, it taps into this thing that, oh, man, under pressure, I'd just love to kill it. The thing that we don't see very often is, is this. All right. So that is uh, actually, you know, our, our good friend, Kurt, you, you played basketball against Steph Curry, didn't you? A couple. You, you killed him, didn't you own it? Didn't happen. <laughs> but you fouled him hard. Okay, that's good. Um, see, we all dream of killing it under pressure, but pressure doesn't shape who we are, you know, because they say, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, uh, well, what doesn't kill you can still seriously maim you, right? Like hardship and pressure by itself doesn't make you anything. Pressure doesn't shape you. Practice does. Pressure only reveals who you really are. Pressure doesn't shape you. Hard times don't make you better. They just reveal who you already are. And friends, you know, that's a nice little video about the pressure of a winding down shot clock in a game that really ultimately is meaningless. It doesn't compare to the pressures you're facing. The pressure of a, you know, an overtime shot is nothing compared to the pressure to bail on a marriage that's gotten really difficult. The pressure that you may be under in a relationship, you're dating someone to sleep with them, even though you're not married. Shot clock pressure doesn't compare to that. That doesn't compare to the pressure you face in financial crisis or in sickness or when you're battling cancer, when one of your children is, one of your relatives are, when you're caring for elderly parents and day after day there's greater and greater needs. That's pressure. And that pressure does not shape you. It just reveals who you are. Practice actually shapes you. Daniel, you know, when he goes 
into this situation and the pressure begins to come. Think about how he feels when this edict comes out that basically says anyone who prays, I mean, he knows he's set up. He knows he's done. The pressure, can you imagine the pressure of like actually being in a lion's den at night? Like the, the little kids' books, that the little children's Bibles, the lions are all smiling. And finally they got, a, they got the, the, the guys who do some of the illustration for DC Comics to do a real Bible, right? It's called the Action Bible if you haven't seen it. I mean, those pages are scary. I'm, I'm a little bit scared to even look at it. Don't even get started with Revelation. It's freaky, right? He's in a den with these guys all night and not even a scratch on him. But imagine, just put yourself in the, okay, like the pressure of, wanting to conform and fit in, the pressure of wanting to meet the demands of a new king and finally things are working out going up, the pressure of thinking, great, I'm going to do what I always do and this is going to get me thrown in the lion's den. And, and you think about, we look at it as a victory story. How many prayers did God not answer for Daniel all the way up to that den? God, just give me favor in this. He did, but, but, but kind of protect me. Well, now I'm being set up. Well, God, let the king see through the setup. Nope, that didn't get answered. Well, let the king bail me out even though he made this edict. Nope, that didn't happen. Well, let me not somehow be thrown into the lion's den. Maybe it's a lighter penalty or whatever. Maybe I stand in the corner for 30 minutes. Nope, that didn't get answered either. Now I'm going into the lion's den. The pressure. And you think, well, what did Daniel do in the lion's den? We know exactly what he did. He did what you and I would do maybe for the first time prayed. We know he did it because you know what he did as soon as he found out this was going to happen? Look what it says in Daniel 6.10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, what did he do? He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, what? Just as he had done before. What changed for Daniel when the pressure came? nothing. I'm sure his prayers are a little more desperate, but he did the same thing he always did. Under pressure, what he had practiced in his life came out. Instead of I, if me, if it's me, I'm praying under the window, not in front of it. I'm praying under my bed. I'm like, God, please, I'm just going to shut the windows today. Or I'm just going to pray, but I'm not going to pray in front of the windows. Or maybe I'll just pass today just because you know this thing just happened. And God, you can't really, you're not really expecting me to do that when you know, Lord, you know. That's how we pray, right? Lord, you know. How could I do that? And he goes and does the same thing he always did. And in fact, we know though it was a personal practice, it was not private. Because look at what the king says when he rescues him. Verse 20, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Listen to what he says. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, comma, who you serve continually been able to rescue you? Clearly, the practices of Daniel's life were visible to the man that he worked for. This was personal, but it was not private. His faith was actually very public. This is how these guys knew they could get him on it. It's how the king knew, Daniel, did your God whom you serve continually? See, we focus on the pressure and the miracle. We focus on God, like just, you know, how am I going to be? Am I going to perform under pressure? God, can you do this miraculous intervention? Like that's what we, we focus on Daniel somehow being, um, you know, stable in the lion's den and God rescuing him, but God focuses on and Daniel's focus was actually on the practices of his life because pressure doesn't shape you practice does and when I say practice I mean practices see Christians through the centuries have had these things that they have engaged in called spiritual practices it's not like practice as in rehearsal it's things that they repeat over and over and over in life 
spiritual practices. Tony talked about this, is that the weekly Sunday gathering is a spiritual practice. Daily prayer is a spiritual practice. Fasting is a spiritual practice. Having Sabbath rest is a spiritual practice. Celebrating regularly in community is a spiritual practice. And if you say, well, what is, what is a spiritual practice? And I want to read this for you because I, I wrote it down. A series of small and at times seemingly insignificant practices which over time have a massive cumulative effect on our lives. Not only are they small and sometimes insignificant, they're uncomfortable and sometimes difficult to do. Do you know why? Because the rhythm of our life, the rhythm of my life, the rhythm of your life, does not lend itself well to spiritual practice. See, what governs most of the habits that you have and that I have, and we have, some of us have good habits in our lives, and we like some of the habits, and we all have bad habits in our lives, and we don't, don't like those things, but what drives the habitual cycle in your life tends to be your work rhythm, your family rhythm, how you decide to spend your evenings, how you decide to spend your weekends, how you vacation. All of those things are, tend to drive the practices and the rhythms of our life, but the spiritual practices are actually difficult to entrench in our life. There's really nothing in the regular part of our life that makes it easy for us to practice these things, which is why we actually don't do them very often, which is why when we do it, it's like if you go to the gym, like Andy Stanley says this, anything you do randomly begets random stuff in your life. You eat a Twinkie one day, it's not really going to affect you that day. You go to the gym one day, that's not really going to affect you either. <laughs> but you eat Twinkies continually or you go to the gym continually, anything that you do continually has a massive cumulative effect on your life. Anything that you do randomly has no effect on your life. And part of our challenge with the spiritual practices is we live in a world, in our culture, which is so hard it seems to carve these things in, and sometimes they seem small. Oh, I missed this today, or I didn't do that today, or they seem insignificant. I'm trying this. It doesn't seem to do anything for me. They seem insignificant, and yet over time they have a massive cumulative effect on our lives. I want to focus on the one just briefly as we close today, the one that Daniel did, which was prayer. And I would say this, that of any of the spiritual practices, of anything that we would to b- engage in regularly, prayer is the bedrock. It is the most basic. It is the most foundational aspect of our life with God. It is the one thing, if we begin to practice regularly, it begins to have a massive cumulative effect. I mean, all the spiritual practices do, but if you say, where would I even start? Prayer is the bedrock. Because fundamentally life with God is a relation, a relationship. And prayer is the language by which we speak to God and we hear him speak back to us. So therefore, any relational strength, any relational vitality with God is going to begin with regular prayer. We look at things like, you know, praying three times a day or, um, you know, that kind of stuff and say, oh, that's just religion, that's just whatever, you know. The point is, though, actually in our life with God, the connection, the sense of intimacy, it's like you wouldn't say, uh, you know, someone wouldn't look at my life and say, Vijay, oh, you just, you talk to Jen every day. So religious. <laughs> it's, no, it's, like, it's like anything that is a part of relationship life, we do regularly, the more regularly we do it, the, the potential for intimacy and connection is there more and more. Now, uh, we, we don't pray for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we, we look at other people who we admire. Maybe sometimes you've had a spiritual mentor or someone who's sort of on that journey. Maybe you say, oh, I'm not even on that journey, or I'm just started, or I'm somewhere, but that person, they really know how to pray. <coughs> but but I, don't, I don't know how to do that. I can't do it that way. I don't have the words. I don't pray the right way. So we say, I'm not going to pray. 
Or maybe we say, well, I don't, I don't know how. I don't even know where to begin. Sometimes we just feel guilty about the fact that we don't, so then we just never do, we just, and the guilt just works against us. But I want to give you something, just a handle, a pathway to say, okay, how would I begin to pray regularly? How would I begin to do something that would actually become for me the, a, a vital source of intimacy with me and God? If I actually begin to learn that one of the practices that if I'm saying, okay, under pressure, in hardship, what I want actually is for myself to, to, to thrive, to not just survive, but to thrive. How would that happen through the practices, the spiritual practices, which are the gifts that the tradition of the church, the history of the church, and Jesus himself gives us? Look at Jesus' life. He was always praying. <clears throat> Regularly, we see. He, he was a guy who was like, life was full of activity, and he would heal a whole bunch of people, and then the next morning, they'd look for him, and he's gone. Jesus, don't you see that? He's like, I needed time by myself to pray. He goes and chooses the disciples. Do you know what he did before he chose the disciples? He prayed all night. Jesus was regularly in communion with the God that he said, this is my Father. I'm going to be in communion with him. I'm going to be talking with him. And he was teaching us to pray. And so prayer is that vital lifeblood of our relationship with God. And so here's what I want to do. And Richard Foster says it this way, as we think, just to help us get into prayer. He says this, we do not have to be bright or pure or filled with faith or anything. That is what grace means. And not only are we saved by it, we live by it as well. And we pray by it, right? That the God of grace invites us into intimacy with him, just saying, open your mouth and talk to me. Any of you have, have children, right? As they sort of bumble and stumble their way through their words as they're learning. Are, you know, when they're like one or two or whatever, like even when they say, do you like, oh, no, you were phonetically, that was horrible. I mean, how did you, where did you, who taught you? You love any little attempt that they make to get sounds out. You love you feel like they're trying to communicate with you, and you love it. You don't criticize them for it. And no matter what stage they are, and if you have older um, kids, you know, you love it when they call you. They're communicating with you. You don't say, like, you know, I mean, sometimes, and my grandmother used to say, we, we always, Jen and I always say, like, the first words that she would say, hey, how come you don't call very often? Like, okay, so maybe we have that. But, hey, it's just because she wanted to hear from us, right? Anyone in relationship, you don't criticize them for reaching out to community. Why would God be like that with us? Why do we think of God in categories that don't fit who he is? Okay, so let's just pray by grace. How do we do this? So here's what, um, any of you are taking the Alpha course. They were talking about prayer the other day, and I listened to it. I was like, man, I love this. And they talked about a prayer, and I just added an acronym to it, and I called it Teaspoon Prayer. Any of you who bake or cook, what's the short form for teaspoon? TSP. Okay, teaspoon prayer. And you know, it's a teaspoon is like a little bit at a time, right? Like prayer, our life with prayer, and maybe some of you are like, oh, I pray for hours. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes it's actually better to pray for shorter, more regularly. Just saying this is actually about an ongoing active participation in my relationship with God in every moment so that I know that God isn't just present in my prayer closet, closet or in the holy place that I go, but he's actually with me in my workplace. He's actually with me in the car. He's actually in the middle in, with me in the middle of this fight or whatever. If I can begin to learn to talk to him regularly. So this teaspoon prayer, TSP, hopefully you remember that. It begins with thank you. God, thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Just beginning every time we pray, just short. God, thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Sorry for what I've done, what I haven't done, what I've said, what I haven't said, what I've thought or been thoughtless about. Just that opportunity every day to, to, to repent and know that we have forgiveness, right? Jesus has done everything needed to forgive us, and so repentance is this beautiful taking off a load every day, saying I need to get this off my chest every moment. And then please pray into my day. God, provide for this need. Help me reconcile this relationship. Free me from this habit, whatever it is. Thank you. Sorry. Please. 
What we want to do is as we gather in church this morning, we have a few minutes left. I actually just want to give you five minutes to do this, to pray. So we don't just talk about prayer or talk about God. We actually have time to talk to him. You've already been doing that a little bit in some of the worship songs. They're almost all prayers. We're going to just take five minutes, and you have a little sheet that you got on the way in. Hopefully you did. Even if you didn't, you can pull out your phone or whatever you want to do to make notes on. And why don't you just take five minutes and just go through God, here's what I want to thank you for. It may be for God's character, the aspects of who he is, or something that he's done for you, a provision he's made for you, whatever that is. And then sorry, whatever you need to get off your chest, whatever you need to repent of. You don't have to go looking for stuff. Just listen. Maybe there's one thing you just need to confess. And then what's, how do you want to bring God into your life? And no matter where you are in your journey, even if you've never prayed before, even if you're not even sure God is there, this is one way to begin to find out. And so take a moment, and uh, it's going to be up on the screen for you, and let's take five minutes to pray, and then we'll move on. <coughs> that gives you a little bit of a, of a beginning place. My prayer is, uh, and even as I was preparing this week, is that this would open up. Maybe for some of you, the prayer arteries have been blocked for a while. Uh, there's so many things that come in and get in the way of intimacy with God. And maybe for some of you, they've never opened. Maybe you've never tried out of fear or out of whatever. My hope is this, this little bit at a time, that this would be something, and even as you think about your, your week, maybe there's a place that you pass twice a day, like the same light, you know, if you commute. Use that as your tripwire to go, ah, teaspoon prayer. Maybe there's a place when you're waiting for the train or you're waiting for whatever it is, something that's a regular part of your day rather than find, find something else, saying, God, what can become, how can this become a regular part of my life? And to say, over time, like what happens if you do this over time? Because you think, oh, well, this is, like it seems small, it seems insignificant. Is this just a thing we're supposed to do if we're trying to please God? You know, we sang earlier that God doesn't need us, right? So what is this prayer thing about? I want you to think about this as we close. What happens if you begin to thank God regularly? What do you become? More grateful, right? If you thank God, if you're, if you're daily rehearsing the goodness of God, who he is and what he's done, what happens in your life, you become more grateful. Secondly, if you daily, on a regular basis, begin to repent, and just have opportunities to say, God, I'm sorry, I missed this opportunity, I shouldn't have said that, or I'd like to have that one back, or I know I need to go make that right. What happens to you? You become more humble, right? Because you're regularly in touch with who you really are. Humility is just seeing yourself as you really are. And what happens if you begin to pray into your day? Anything you're about to do, any decision you're about to make, big or small, any conversation you're about to have, what happens if you start to do that and you begin to depend more on God and less on yourself? You actually experience his peace. Now look at that. Grateful, humble, peaceful. Like who doesn't want to be married to somebody like that? <laughs> who, wants, who doesn't want that as a, as a parent? Who doesn't want a life like that? As I've said to you so many times, God needs nothing from us, but he wants so much for us. And so let this be a vision to say, if this is who I want to be under pressure, if this is who I want to become in hardship, God, what can I begin to do? I want to begin to pray. I want to begin to thank you. I want to begin to, to repent, and I want to begin to depend on you more. Let's sing together as we close.